Maybe before we begin the topic and have the scripture, I'll just make a couple of announcements. And comments. I uh, might feel a sense of relief that this is my last session, but I'm also just a little bit sad because you've been a very, very good audience. You've been very observant. You couldn't have agreed with everything, but you still listen so well. One of the things that has been a joy to me is the creation is to the Old Testament what the incarnation is to the New Testament, I think. And I have the privilege to take people that came from the city of Detroit and from horse and buggy people and things like that and try to blend them together and give a message, an incarnation message. And I know it seems out of season, but I'm not sure when that it has to be out of season. There are at least some free Joy to the World CDs that our home youth group came out with for Stillwater's ministry. And however many there are, they're on the table back there. And uh, you can grab them because they're free. We promised the people, the copyright people, that we will not uh, take payment for them. The other announcement is simply that if there is a Sasha in your life or community, you might find the Stillwater's booklet having to do with ministering to the grieving, a very helpful booklet. So we put a little pile of those back there for Stillwaters. Those are my two announcements. Let's stand. I want you to notice the last five words, especially this time. But let's say it together. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for though you are high and lofty, you are so willing to restore the wonder to us. We just bless you, Lord, for your gracious kindness to us, even this week. Bringing all of us together as you did. And letting us share our hearts and our burdens and our thoughts with each other. Lord, thank you for people who are glad to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray that this will be the way we worship the rest of our life. And then, Lord, we look forward to an inexpressible worship in the day following our death. Help us, Lord. Get ready. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
I guess I'm just kind of a country teacher. But there's enough teacher in me. I would really like to hear you say 423. Wonderful. And I would also like to hear you say, Wunderbar. I didn't risk it any other time, but this is my last chance to hear you say, Wunderbar. Can you say it? Wunderbar. I welcome you to Germany. <laughs> Amen. This evening, I'd like to talk to you about decisions and the new song. I know that many of us are saying, well, we're just kind of insignificant here. It won't make a big difference what little decisions I make. And maybe it doesn't. I remember. But I would like to suggest to you that God is guiding us even in our little decisions and sometimes in our little disappointments. I was flying to the East Coast one time from the Midwest, and I had a changeover, I think in St. Louis, and uh, got on the plane and went back to my assigned seat. I was one of those latter ones getting on. And somebody was sitting in my seat. I had an assigned seat, folks. But there was a lady in there that was immobile once she was seated, and she was not going to give up her seat. So I found another seat that was empty, and I sat in it, and a moment later, another straggler came on. And sure enough, I was in that person's seat. So I jumped up quick because I knew I had a fairly recent experience that helped me know how that feels. So I jumped up quickly and let her sit down at that place, the next person. There I stood. So then the stewardess came back to me and wondered why I'm doing their standing, of course. And I said, well... Somebody's in my seat and they refuse to move. She said, come with me. That was a fairly large plane. So she took me to the front and I was dressed almost identical to how I'm dressed today. It's usually how I dress when I travel. And so she said, you may wait here. And so I stood in front of the cabin of these 150 people, whoever it was, and gave them an unprecedented opportunity to view an Amishman <laughs> for some length of time. Just, I'll admit to you, inside, I was not amused because I had paid for a place to sit. And, but outside, I smiled and, uh, because that's what Christians should do. And so I smiled, but inside, I was chafing a bit. And it was about time to close the, the door and uh, get this thing on the road and she came and took me back quite a ways and there were three seats on that side a lady actually a quite portly lady was sitting in the window seat and there was an orthodox Jew in the aisle seat and what room was left in between is where she put me and so I slipped down in that place and uh, we were soon on our way this lady by the window seat was 86 years old. And she had interest in visiting. I had two topics in the East, and I was interested in studying. And so I tried 
to study, and she tried to visit. And so I would visit, and I told her I was a Christian, and that I was going to a meeting in Pennsylvania, I think it was, and uh, tried to be sociable a little bit, and then I would go back and study. And then at a given point, she got my attention. She didn't have far to go, and she got my attention, and she asked. She said, uh, sir, do you believe in prayer? That was the strangest question. I had just told her I was a Christian. What conservative-minded Christian would not believe in prayer? And I said, well, certainly, ma'am, I do believe in prayer. And she seemed satisfied and was quiet. And I could go back to my books and study. And then she got my attention again. Then she said, "Uh, this morning, I got on the plane in San Francisco. And I just... I prayed. I tried. I mean, she tried a prayer. She, she prayed something. She said, I prayed that God would let me sit beside a Christian today. And then I felt convicted for even having been miffed at not having my seat. Because God was orchestrating this whole thing so an 86-year-old woman... I tell you what, I put my books in that little thing right in that pocket right in front of me and left them there the rest of the trip and talked with her. And even asked the Orthodox Jew, who I wondered what in the world he must be thinking about our conversation. I said, sir, I'm interested in the fear of God. And uh, I'm sure that that's a subject that interests you as well. What do you say? What, what would you say about that subject? And he looked at me and he said, The name is so reverent that we ourselves do not even pronounce the name. And as he said that, there was a sense of awe that I sensed on him and it came to me. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many of us have that same sense of awe that we hardly even dare say the name of Jehovah. Yahweh, they call it. That's one of the saddest things about visiting our daughter and her husband in Israel is because we see all these Orthodox people who know Yahweh, but they don't know the Messiah. That's so sad. Just a small decision can make such a difference. When I was over there the last time, I went to Zach that I've already introduced you to. And I said, Zach, what do you have for me this time? What do you have for me to buy this time? He's the Muslim, ex-Muslim preacher of the gospel now. He opened a drawer and he pulled out this. And he said, this is what I think you ought to buy. It's so small you can't even see that there's anything in there. Maybe you can. Some of you can see there's a little something. Then he explained to me, he said, this is made out of, out of bone. And I'm not sure if the little circles in there may be made out of gold. But when, I, when he said, told me what they were about, I was not sure. Because he said this was excavated in Jerusalem. I have the certificate for it. It's 2,000 years old. You can't see what it is. It's so small. 
But what it is, is Roman dice. And John 19, verse 24 says, For my vesture they did cast lots. Now that scripture is an incredible scripture because Jesus was tortured. Jesus was cruelly used. His, what they put on his head was so wrong. The way they beat him across their back was so wrong. But it seems to me the worst thing they did to him was take his clothes off. At the end. It was to make the, just the shame as complete as they can make it. I bought these dice. And I came home not knowing to whether to feel good or guilty. I didn't know which. One day, I came across the scripture in Hebrews 12. And it says, Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. I'm going to skip the next phrase. Endured the cross, despising the shame. Now insert that phrase that I skipped. Who for the joy set before him. And as I pondered that, I thought about some of the things that your heart has been telling you and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart. You're going to go home and you're going to have some siblings and you're going to have some peers and you're going to have some fellow youth. In some cases, maybe even parents who are saying, come on, come on. Don't take it that serious. Don't be so cautious about your music. It can't matter that much. How much does it matter? One Sunday night, I was walking toward the church house with a pastor. And a teenage boy walked up to us with a cardboard box. And he handed us the box. He said, Pastor, I want you to take this now. He said, the Lord has spoken to me earlier about my secular music. But this weekend, he has spoken to me about my so-called Christian music. And I have come to realize this afternoon that some of this does not belong to me. I put it in this box. It's for you. You take care of it. Get rid of it. And then he honestly said, you know, it's a little hard to do it. Because there's like right at a thousand dollars worth of stuff in this cardboard box. That evening after church, I went to somebody's house for a little snack afterward, old friends of ours, and the phone rang. Pastor had gone with us. And the phone call was for the pastor, so the pastor answered the phone. And it had to do with a family who had been there that weekend. And they had been from a conservative setting and left it. And now they were coming back. The teenage daughter had come along, but the teenage son had not. 
He didn't want to hear this part, these things about music, I assume. She had listened. And I sat across at the lunch table at church that day from this couple. But the call had to do with this couple. They came home with their daughter who had attended the services. But the son, his car was there, but he seemed to be nowhere around. And so they went upstairs to his room. It was empty. So they went back downstairs and just waited to make, for him to make his appearance. When some time elapsed and he didn't make his appearance, they went back to his room and began to look closely at things and found a note. And then they went to the barn and they found him. But he was gone already. He had asked a girl to court him and she had not she had not uh, given a positive answer so he took his life two boys the very same afternoon in the very same community made a decision one said the Lord has spoken to me it doesn't matter what it costs I'm going with God the other one says, I've had a disappointment and life's not worth living. I can't make it through this storm. Those are decisions. We make many decisions in a day's time. Somebody has said that we make 1,540 decisions in a day. And if that's true, we make quite a few in a week and many more in a month. And in 70 years, you make, you make many, many decisions. In a lifetime, you could easily make 38 million, 700 and some decisions. And I think it's wise for us to consider making a decision as it relates to music. And say, Lord, I learned something I didn't know, which is what I do constantly. And I'm open to you. And I'm going to make a decision. And I'm going to stick by that decision. What if you went home and you lived a three-day walk from the nearest church? This happened, actually, four hours from Moscow. And so they decided, they only went about twice a year because it was three days there, three days home. You were out a week just to go to church. And so he decided to preach the gospel in his own house. Twenty-five people came. When the officials heard that 25 people came to this house, this happened in Russia, of course, and they, they told him, you've got to stop. But he couldn't. He was committed to his decision. Next Sunday, 50 people came to his house. And when the officials discovered that many more people had come, they, he lost his factory job, Dimitri did. His wife lost her teaching job and her, their children were expelled from school. One of their next services, 75 people came to the house. He was not giving up his decisions. The soldiers burst into their house and began to, and came up and began to slap Dimitri, one side of his face, the other side back and forth across his face. They slapped him. But let him stay. And as the officer who did it was walking back away to leave, 
A little old grandma stepped up to him and said, You have just laid hands on a man of God. And you are not going to survive. Two days later, that officer died of a heart attack. And so, at the next meeting, 150 people came. Because there's something significant going on at this house. And then he was arrested and put into prison for 17 years. His prison cell was so small that one step took him to the opposing wall. One step. But he made a practice every morning to sing a song. That was his decision. He did it year after year after year. Not one of the other 1,500 inmates at that prison were a Christian. Not a one. And they jeered at him and they mocked him for having a song, the nature of what his song was. You might face that. You might face a little of that with your decision. And finally, I don't know how many years it was already. Finally, one day, the authorities came to his cell. And they said that your wife has died and your children have become wards of the state. Will you give up your faith? And he said, I will. Because he knew that if his children became wards of the state, whether he was going to inside or not, he knew he better would on the outside at least. And give up his face, recant, so he can... They said, well, the papers have to be signed, which was their policy. We'll have them ready for you in the morning. That night he prayed. A thousand kilometers away, his wife and children felt a special burden to just intercede and cry out to God for daddy. And they prayed and prayed. And during the night he received a vision that his wife and children are praying for him and they are not dead after all. His wife's not dead after all. The next morning when they were ready to have him sign the paperwork, he said to them, you lied to me. My wife is living and my sons are with her. I had a vision during the night. I know it's true. They are okay. I'm not signing anything. The officers were so exasperated that finally they took him. Not that day, but days following. They kept torching him, beating him, and he wouldn't give up his faith. And always sing that one song in the morning. Each morning, every morning. Finally, in total exasperation, they took that man and they started taking him through the prison to execute him. We can't handle him anymore. Many years had passed, 16 or 17, close to 17 years had passed already. They were done with him. And as they marched him with half of the prisoners on one side and half the prisoners on the other side, and they saw them take him, suddenly these men stood, raised their hands, and they began to sing the song that he had sung every morning. And when they sang that song, the officer that was leading him to his execution stopped 
And he said, who are you? He said, I am the son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. And the officer dropped his hands off of him and took him back to his cell. He was soon released. For some reason, they couldn't touch him. And he was reunited with his wife and children. A choice to sing a song. Sing in the darkness and sing in the light. Sing with the morning and sing in the night. Sing when your eyes have been clouded with pain. Sing in the sunshine and sing through the rain. Sing when it's autumn or winter or spring. Nothing can touch you as long as you sing. For the Lord, of course. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. There is a great dilemma in heaven. They hardly know what to do. It seems like because there is no one available to open the book. And yet there is someone to open the book. Because in verse 5 it says, one of the elders said, weep not, behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Verse 7 says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying, with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, ever and ever, forever. Your decision now will go with you into eternity. The scriptures say, who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Somebody from India made this statement. I will not let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet. The Bible says very simply, flee youthful lusts. Does that include music? 
What does the scripture say? He that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. Someone else has said it is better to carefully guard with tears what we have than to seek carefully with tears what we have lost. If we know of all the immoral tragedies that has been a result of music, we would make the right decision. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted fine linen, clean and white. Small wonder that the Bible says, cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I'd like to see 130 people going home this weekend and there'll be no question that the God they serve is a God who delivers. A God who's able, who's able to help you stand amidst any jeers or any small decision that you make that might not be easy to make. You'll look through those dime-sized holes that you heard about this week, and you'll say, I know there's a much larger picture, but I'm going to do my little part. I'm going to be what I ought to be. And when you do that, you are actually joining Maybe I should add, it's going to take this to help you accomplish that. But when you are going to do that, you're going to join a host of people who have done it before you. And we are reminded of those people Sunday after Sunday. A family many years ago in the late 1700s had a little baby boy. And the father was a young preacher. And he was supposed to preach in registered churches only, but he preached in an unregistered one, and he got put in a jail for it. And Mama took the little baby to go visit him. And I'm sure his heart hurt, because he has the little son, and he wants to be at home with him. He was soon released, able to go home, and he just poured himself into teaching and training that little boy. He wanted that boy to grow up to be a wise young man. In fact, by the time he was four, he taught him Latin, even though they were English speaking. By the time he was nine, he had learned Greek, French at 10, and Hebrew at 13. But let's go back to his childhood. When he was a little boy, his mother, his father noticed that he has a keen mind. And also his father was a man who believed in reverence. And so his father heard him laugh during prayer, family prayer one morning. That was a big no-no. So when prayer was over, he said to his son, Son, why did you laugh? I don't know the exact words, of course, but what was the disturbance during prayer? Well, the little boy had just happened to peep a little bit when he was praying, when Daddy was praying, and he noticed a mouse running across the floor. And he thought to himself, There was a mouse for want of stairs, ran up the rope to say his prayers. You see, the family slept up in the loft, and they had a little stairway going up there. But there was a rope hanging down from it. 
And he saw that mouse go up there where they're going to sleep that night. Oh, he went up there to pray. It's what we're doing. Well, poor daddy, what do you do? <laughs> it's a little hard to discipline at that point. This boy, over and over again, he would put things into rhymes over and over again. And finally, dad got tired of it. And he said, son, all this rhyme making has to stop. You can't just keep making all these rhymes. And the little boy looked at his daddy so pleading. He said, oh, father, do some pity take and I will no more verses make. (laughs) (laughs) You see, it just came. It just came. When he was in his upper teens, he came home from church one Sunday. And he said, Father, they couldn't have sung a worse hymn than church today. And Dad said, you don't talk like that about church. Yeah, but Dad, this is what they had sung. Ye monsters from the bubbling deep, your maker's praise spout out. Up from the sand, ye coddlings, peep and wave your tails about. Not too inspirational either for the 1700s. His dad still didn't want him to be disrespectful. So his dad said, if you don't like what we sang, then you write something better. And he did. He wrote, not all the blood of beasts. If I'm not mistaken, I should double check that perhaps. But he wrote a hymn. Not only did he write a hymn that week, but he wrote another one the following And he wrote one every week the rest of that year and the following year and the third year and about two months into the fourth year, if I remember correctly. You may have guessed that he became known as the father of English hymnody. His name was Isaac Watts. Why is that name important to us today? Why do we call him the father of English hymnody? Back in those days, they sang the monsters from the deep songs, and they sang the psalms. And any good Jew, any Orthodox Jew could sing those songs. But Isaac had the burden that you need to put Jesus of Nazareth into the song. And when you put him into the song, it's obvious that the Messiah has come. It's not just something for any Jew to sing. And I took the Christian hymnary some years ago and I just listed some of the songs in that book alone before Jehovah's awful throne great God indulge my humble claim and Annalise's song there O God our help in ages past I'll praise my maker Lord thou hast searched but then there's when I survey the wondrous cross that one's in red because it's very very plain that the Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah for us all. And then you have, alas, and did my Savior bleed. Behold the glories of the Lamb. Am I a soldier of the cross? The Lord of glory is my light and my salvation too. Lo, what a pleasing sight. Jesus reign, come down here. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. And whether everyone can sing that as nicely as what your choir would sing it uh, is to be debated, of course. But folks, the message is powerful. Peace on earth, goodwill to man. Why? Because wunderbar came. Wonderful came. Not all the blood of beasts, alas, and did my Savior bleed. On and on he wrote. Come we that love the Lord, am I a soldier of the cross? So let our lives and lips 
I think the song that he had written was Behold the Glories of the Lamb, I think is really the one he wrote that first Sunday. You think life was easy for Isaac? Well, for one thing, he was very short. And for another thing, he had a very big head. And it didn't look properly proportioned. And so, but he was, there was a lot in that head. And he was brilliant. He was not healthy. He was not attractive. He had a girlfriend. And finally, he asked her to marry him. And she said this. I can certainly love the jewel, but I could never love the case it comes in. And she turned him down. I think he was single the rest of his life. That must have been a horrible experience for him, a very difficult experience for him. But today, this is not a Pepsi-Cola song, a Pepsi-Cola Christian Cola song or some sort or another. Folks, you, you study the depths of these songs. There was a thinking young man who had an encounter with God and he made the decision to do it. And that's... Then we have George Duffield. I hope that you don't mind us having story time to close things off with this afternoon. George Duffield was a businessman in Philadelphia. And he had, was having terrible time with his finances. Things were just not working out. Business reverses. And he finally met with Joe. And he said, Joe, would you, would you meet with me and... And, and pray with me and I could get myself out of mess. I never even prayed before I got into this business and I'm terrible shape. And Joe said, of course I will. And then they invited others to pray. And finally there were several hundred people meeting in a regular time for prayer in Philadelphia. Guess what happened? George's business was forgotten. But there was revival sprang up when God's people pray. That's what happened. In the middle of that revival was a man by the name of Duffield. Pastor, I'm seeing not Duffield, Ting. Pastor Ting. Dudley Ting was his name. He was a young pastor, 28 years of age. He had a large congregation. About 5,000 people in the audience in his Philadelphia church. And it was during, it was the 1860s. So one Sunday he just preached his heart out of what he believed that God loves the black people and he talked, spoke against slavery and things like that. And while he was preaching, 1,500 members of that congregation got up and walked out the door. They are not going to listen to that kind of preaching. If you were a 28-year-old pastor and a third of your congregation would walk out while you're preaching, what would you say or do? I can tell you what he did. He said... I must tell my master's errand. I would rather that this right arm were amputated at the trunk than that I should come short of my duty in delivering God's message to you. And he made the decision to go on preaching like before. It was said at a later service, he gave an altar call and there were a thousand responses. Why? He had made a decision that he stuck to. That's why. One Wednesday, he went out to his farm, had people taking care of his farm. He walked up the corn grinders, pulled by horses, round and round and round. And he looked up there to see how much corn was in the hopper. And when he did so, his silk jacket got caught in the, in the gears of that grinder. And it pulled him in before he could get away and get the horses stopped. 
injured his arm badly. In those days, they didn't have penicillin. Hospitals were not sanitary. And you can guess what happened. Infection sat in, and he became weaker and weaker. And his father came to visit him, which is probably the ages of a few of the men sitting in the back today. And he said, son, Pastor Ting, son Ting, son Dudley probably. He said, it looks to me like you're going to be going with the Lord. Do you have a message for the people who've been part of the great revival here in Philadelphia? And he weakly said to his father, Dad, tell the boys to stand up for Jesus. George Duffield preached the funeral sermon. And across the body of that pastor who had had the disappointment and the storm of having 1,500 people walk out on him only to have 1,000 people gather back in at a given time and commit their lives to Jesus. Across that pulpit, he began to quote a poem at the end of his sermon that he had just quoted, George Duffel, that he had just written. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. And then he got to the third stanza finally. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you, ye dare not trust your own. Ah, double meaning. It had failed the pastor, but it hadn't failed God. Put on the gospel armor and watching under prayer where duty calls our danger, be never wanting there. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, there's a young man who's being restless. His mother's a widow, and he wants to move west. Because Horace Greeley said, go west, young man, go west. And he wanted to get west. And so he went west. He was already busy selling shoes in the East Coast. He found a good job in the west, Chicago, in fact. And he began to sell shoes there. Go to the motels. He had ways of getting hold of people. He sold shoes. He proved himself a tremendous salesman. Put $5,000, which is an unheard of sum, for a single fellow to put in his account. He was doing very well. The Lord got hold of him. He said, you need a higher goal than selling shoes. And when he made that commitment, when he made that decision, the church that he was attending, they rented the pews. And he went to the church and he told them, or this one, the one was perhaps a little Sunday school type thing. And he told them, he said, could I have a class? I'll teach a class. Because he'd been brought up as a, in a Christian family. Could I have a class? And they said, sorry, but we already have two teachers to one student, the way it is. We don't, have, we don't have a class. Well, he said, what if I would make my own class? Could we have one? Could I have it then? Well, that's up to him. So he rented a pew. And by next Sunday, he had it full. And then he rented another pew and then had that one filled up. And then the third one had that one filled up. And the people looked at those fellows that were sitting there, those children that were sitting there. See, he had some unusual salesman tactics to get him there because he used a pony on the street. And he would say to the children on the sidewalk, you want to ride on my pony? You can have one. You got to go to Sunday school with me on Sunday. So they took the ride and they came to Sunday school. Sunday school grew so large that it finally started his own. And finally, he had a thousand people coming to Sunday school. And you can guess that it was a rowdy group, too. They weren't used to, they weren't used to church. 
One day there was a knock on his door. He answered it, and standing there was Professor Trudeau. He said, I've come from the East. I have the songs of William Bradbury. And by now you probably guess that I'm talking about D.L. Moody. I have the songs of William Bradbury with me. Now, William Bradbury was in church one Sunday morning and made a decision. He, de- he discovered that the song that the, the song leader gave out was not him that Sunday. That it was so difficult he couldn't sing it. And he said to himself, if I can't sing this song, I take an advanced studies in, uh, in England. I had studied over here uh, under Lowell Mason, William had, and I can't sing the song, What About the Children? So he began to compose songs that children could understand. Now, they didn't sing him in church. They only sang him in Sunday school. And oh, what a decision he made. It was good he made that decision because he only had 12 more years to live. And he became tubercular and died. And when he died at his funeral, there were 5,000 children. How come? He taught the children, put him in little black and white suits before his death, put him in little black and white suits and took him to New York City Public schools didn't have singing programs. They didn't have music programs for the children. They got it after they saw what William Bradbury could do with children singing. He would go to New York City with his children, and there was finally not a concert hall in all of New York City big enough to hold the crowds to come hear William Bradbury's children sing. They didn't know children could be such an interest to people. And at his funeral, 5,000 children came to give respect to the man who gave them. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And now Professor True is standing here at Moody's door. Moody didn't know if music's all that important or not, but I guess, I guess you can, yeah, you can come in. He was a good-natured fellow. You can come in. You can teach my children to sing. That's okay. And so he did. Two things happened. The first thing that happened was the children behaved better. Moody didn't have any idea that music would make so much difference. When the children could participate in singing, the department just changed. Because up to before that point, there were times when, if there weren't any parents at Sunday school or somebody, that either Moody or one of his helpers would take up to 15 to 20 children out behind the tabernacle and spank him good. And then bring him back in. Well, that interrupted the service too. And he just noticed that they behaved so much better once they sang. There was a second response that he hadn't thought of. The second response was, these children went home to their ghetto homes whose parents did not come along. And they sang what they had memorized. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Moody couldn't have possibly visited all those homes. He visited many. He couldn't have possibly visited. And suddenly he saw he had an entire army of little soldiers, missionaries. Oh, Lord, he said, please, send somebody, send somebody, send somebody who will send somebody who can lead the singing. I can't. People say I sound like a bullfrog when I sing. And he may have. I can't do it. I need somebody to help me. 
One year passed, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight and a half years passed. Moody was asked to go to a YMCA convention in Indianapolis, Indiana. And when he got there, they had large meetings. Wonderful sermons, but very poor singing. And sitting in the audience were two men. The one said to the other, he said, you, you just, when they are at the end of this next sermon, you lead a song when they call for a song. Well, who asked him? Well, he just did. So that man got to his feet at the end of that sermon before the next one started, and his baritone voice just rang out over that whole crowd. And immediately, the singing changed because he was a man who believed in prayer. And he prayed, and, he, and singing meant words. He, when he sang, he pronounced every word clearly. And something happened. And then there came the next sermon. Moody was just like a child. Uh, and the next sermon, he, he, he was getting ready for supper. <laughs> he was getting ready to go do something else. He just, you know, church to be over, time to go home, or whatever. And when it was over, he was in the back. He went looking for that fellow, the man who led that singing. And when he found him, he said, what is your name? He said, my name is Ira Sankey. He said, where do you live? Newcastle, Pennsylvania. He said, well, uh, are you married? Yes, I am. Do you have children? Yes, I have two. He said, well, you're going to leave all that and come with me. No, of course not. Of course not. And Moody, he said, what do you work? He said, I work for Internal Revenue Service. You do? Well, you're going to leave that. No. No, he said, my father's done that, and I do that too. I don't understand his loyalty to the IRS, but anyway, it's okay. He just, you know. Oh, Moody's mind was spinning. He said, listen, listen, listen. Tomorrow afternoon on so-and-so street corner, I want you to be there. Will you do that? Well, it wasn't that Sankey wasn't good-natured. Sankey said, yeah, I'll be there. So the following afternoon at the appointed time, 4 o'clock, I think it was 4 o'clock that they were there, Moody was already there waiting. And when he saw him coming, he didn't even say hello. All he said, he just went in the drugstore. He came out with an empty orange crate. He turned the wooden orange crate upside down. And when Sankey got there, he said, Sankey, stand on it. So Sankey stepped on it. He said, all right, now sing. It's moody, strange. But anyway, he started to sing. <laughs> he just sang his beautiful baritone voice, lifting out, pronouncing every word so clearly. And just that time, the factory whistles blew, and the people poured out of the factories, tired, probably carrying those black metal lunch boxes, wanting to get home and get sleep. The conditions were dirty and, and wearisome, and not so, they just weren't great. And yet, remember, there's no pipe music around anywhere. This is a strange sound. What's that? What's that going on up in the street? And so they went up to find out, and not only them, many more until they had not only the sidewalk filled, but the entire street, and they were filling up the sidewalk on the opposite side. And Moody saw that all the horses and carriages could no longer go through. And so he said, Sankey, stop! And then he jumped up and he told the folks, get off to the side, come everybody over here, and, 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 but just follow us, there'll be some more, but get off so the carriages can get through. Sankey, he said, let's go, now sing. So Sankey starts singing again. And they walked down the street, walked into a large building, and these people just followed like a bite piper. They just walked right in, one after the next, and then Moody preached, and Sankey sang, Moody preached. All once Moody stopped. 
Oh, he said, there's supposed to be a service here tonight on how to win the masses, and we're going to have to let you people go because there's people going to be coming for that. Well, you know the rest of the story. Sankey, in that one afternoon's experience, had already learned the power. East Putman County, New York. Baby girl is born to the delight of John and Mercy. Six weeks later, they discover she has an infection in her eyes. They go to the town, they go to their family doctor, only to find that he's gone. And they were directed to somebody else who said, Oh, your baby has an, an infection. I'm going to make a hot mustard poultice, put it on her eyes. We'll draw the infection right out of her eyes, and your baby will be fine. And Mercy said, oh, no, you don't. Not put a hot mustard poultice on a tender six-week-old baby's eyes. You can't do that. But he proceeded and did it and blinded Fanny Crosby for life. Later, Somebody told Fanny, how is it to live with your affliction? Fanny said, it is not an affliction. It is a gift from God. Why? Because Fanny had a grandmother. And I bless God for every grandmother and grandfather that you have. May they see their role in helping you make the right decision in music. This is what grandma did. She began to teach her the Bible. That's one thing she did. All of Genesis, 50 chapters, all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 187 chapters in all. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Psalms, Song, the Ecclesiastes, and Gospels of the New Testament. She memorized verse after verse after verse after verse. In those days, if you had a handicap, you lived in seclusion you were considered a liability. But Fanny's grandma was determined she would not be. Why was it Fanny's grandma? Why wasn't it Mercy? Well, she was born in the spring. And in the fall, John, who was a farmer, and it was wet weather, was outside trying to get the farming done. It's wet conditions. He got pneumonia and died from it. So Fanny couldn't possibly even remember her father. And Mercy had to go out and work to try to do housework and get a, to make a living. There are many, many stories about Fanny. We don't have time to tell you nearly all of them. But I can tell you this much. It was 31 years of age she was at a Methodist meeting in New York when she said... The one I know so much about, do I really know him? And so one evening, she made a decision. She walked forward, blind as she was. And when the pastor saw her coming, he changed the song to, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when Fanny heard that, she said, Hallelujah. It was almost like a shout to the world that there'll be eight to 9,000 songs coming. And all week since Monday, we've been singing Fanny Crosby songs right here. A quick story about John Sweeney. He and Fanny, and John Sweeney's name's in this book as well. 
He and Fanny were at Lake Erie at a camp meeting, an annual camp meeting. And one evening they went to the motel, or the hotel rather, to sleep. And Fanny, and, and John just said to Fanny, he said, Fanny, there in the lobby, he said, uh, do you think we'll know each other in heaven? And you know, sometimes handicapped people can be just a little sensitive to the questions they get asked. And she said, I, John, I know why you're asking that, because I'm blind. I've never seen anyone, and you think I won't know each other. Somebody asked Vance Havner that after his wife passed away. Will we know each other in heaven? And Vance's quick reply was, do you think we'll be more stupid there than we are here? <laughs> of course we'll know each other in heaven. Or how could they have known who was at the mountain of transfiguration? It's up to God how he plans it all. And Fanny said, yes, I believe. I believe we will know each other in heaven, but I don't know. But you know, the one I really want to see when I get there is Jesus. And if I wouldn't know which one would be him, I would go up to the one I think is him and I would say to him, show me your hands. John was speechless. Because we already know from the scriptures, post-resurrection, there were scars in his hands. When he could talk, he said, Fanny... That should be put into a song. And Fanny said, oh, it is quite past my bedtime. And that little five-foot lady weighed about 95 to 100 pounds, headed down the hall to her bedroom. And so then, the next morning, she comes out getting ready to go back to the campground. She comes to the lobby. She hears John Sweeney's voice. John! Oh, good morning, Fanny. John! When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I get on the other side. And his smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know it. I shall know him. When redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. And she quoted the entire poem that she had written during the night in her mind. 15 songs on 15 different subjects were usually how many she wrote before she called for a stenographer. She put them all in her mind. The most I ever read was that she had 42 songs before she called for a stenographer. And then she quoted all 42 to him. Now, you homeschooler folks, you, t you pour on the memorization. Get those first five books that Moses learned, and you might even get to have lunch earlier next year. Who knows? You know, I mean, the stories go on and on. William Howard Doan had a heart attack. And they, at 28 years of age, it took him off the train to die. And his wife heard him mutter, I'll do it. And she said, what are you saying? He said, the Lord's been convicting me. I should make a decision in the area of music. The Lord's been convicting me. And I've been saying no because I love high class music. And I don't want to just do music that's for the average congregational person. But he said, I'll do it. And God gave him the acquaintance of Fanny Crosby. And on the left side of many a song, you will see the poetries by Fanny Crosby. On the right-hand side, you will see it's William Howard Dawn who wrote the music. Over a thousand of her songs, he wrote the music. Horatio Spafford, lost a son, grieved, terribly sad. And then he lost his holdings in the Chicago Fire. And then his wife and daughters ended up going across the Atlantic while he stayed behind on business or he would have even lost the property where the fire had been. 
And while sailing across the ship she was on, she was holding the three girls, the four girls she had were Maggie, Annie, Donetta, and Bessie. And she was holding Bessie, the youngest one. And a ship in that vast Atlantic Ocean crashed into her ship. And down it went. Twelve minutes. When that water came in, she was seen kneeling on that deck and crying out to God for his protection and his will. But when that ship went down, the water came across and swooshed Bessie right out of her hand and knocked all four of them, and their grave is still the Atlantic Ocean till the resurrection. She was knocked off the deck herself, but amazingly was riding on a piece of wooden wreckage till she was rescued. When she got to Europe, she telegrammed back and said, saved alone. And meanwhile, Moody came down and gave a letter for Philip Bliss to tell Philip Bliss, it's time. He quits just teaching music school, but it's time that he gets involved in music evangelism and helping the preachers that need a song leader. In fact, he even said, and he knew Philip was making $100 a night. Well, he knew he was making a bunch of money in his music instruction. And he, he told him, he said, if you don't have enough money, he said, I, in fact, I had to turn down 500 pounds that somebody offered me because I didn't need it. And if you don't have enough faith, he said, use some of mine for a while. Sign, deal, Moody. That was 1874, and Philip Bliss said yes. He and Lucy said, his wife said, listen, we're not doing this because Moody says so. We're only going to do this if we know God's calling us to it. I wish I could tell you, I could talk to you for 45 minutes on Philip Bliss alone. He was a soft-hearted man, and we've sung his songs this week right here. Precious song. They said he even had tears when he sang, sang the ABCs in, in school in his childhood. But in 1876, December the 29th, the train that he was on collapsed on the Ashtabula Bridge and he went down. So did Lucy. The first cars at the bottom of the Ashtabula River, everybody drowned. The cars above that crashed in the wooden, the uh, iron stoves that had coal in it or whatever was heating each. They just set the rest of the wreckage on fire. Lucy was fast. Bliss was thrown clear of the wreckage. He tried to get her loose, but the Lord took them both. They both died. Phil and George had stayed back with the grandparents. It was through a terrible big snowstorm is what happened. The bridge was weak. James McGranahan went to see what was wrong, what they could do to recover them, but they were never recovered. The suitcase, the briefcase that had gone a different, the suitcases had gone on a different cargo train to Chicago where they were headed. Many a number of times I've had my family around the pedestal in Rome, Pennsylvania, and we'd sing one of the most beautiful of his songs. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. 
Hallelujah, what a Savior. When James McGranaham opened his suitcase back in Chicago, he found a song that thrilled my heart. The other morning I was in the back and I heard the folks in here singing, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. And that's what God's able to do. I want to share two things in conclusion. One is, we have talked about this perfection. We've talked about the falling culture. And this is not Christian culture that is just 20 years behind or 5 years behind. But one of Fanny Crosby's favorite Old Testament scriptures was found in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where it says, The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. What that means is that the gravitational pull of the world and the world's music does not have to take you. Because you can be on the upper side where the gravitational pull is not nearly as strong. And there's something else. Our pastors often use this for a conclusion. And they say, Now unto him who's able to keep you from falling. We can't do it in our strength. You make the right decision and God will see you through it. He'll help you. He'll do it. But you know what? We serve a pleasable God. And that's amazing for us just being mortals. Because the rest of that prayer, and I didn't know what else to call you but Zion Bible Conference saints or such. And so that's what I wrote in there. He's not only able to keep you from falling, but he's able to present you faultless with exceeding joy. That's what God's able to do when you make the right decision. That was my second to last. Here's my last illustration. When I was a boy, we had a dirt, a gravel road, a sand road rather, in front of our school. And we did a 200-yard relay. And they would line up four boys at the starting line and four boys at 50 yards, four boys at 100 yards, and four boys at 150 yards. And my teacher would be at the 200-yard mark. They'd have a string pulled across. Somebody was helping him hold a string. And I can just see, when his arms went down, the decision was made. And did they ever go running? They ran. That first runner would go. And when he'd get almost to the second runner, the second runner would back up. He'd be picking up speed. And then very carefully, he would pass the baton over him without dropping it. And run just as hard as he could run to the second man at the 100-yard mark. And then that second man would back up. He would reach out his hand and start running hard. And then he would pass it over to him. And then they were headed for the last man at the 150-yard mark. That's usually where I stood. And my heart would beat. It would beat strong. When I saw that runner coming toward me, and he was already ahead of the others, And it was going to be my job to get to that finish line first. 
and my heart be pumping, I back up, I run as fast as I dared, making it possible for him to catch up with me, and he'd carefully pass it over to me, and then I'd take off as hard as I could run for two reasons. I wanted to feel that string across my chest, and I wanted to meet my teacher at the other end, who was there to see who comes. Now, you've had grandpas who've been careful with their music, some of you at least, and who've had certain convictions. And you've had parents who've had certain convictions in music. And now right here are the people at the 150-yard mark or maybe at the 100-yard mark. And it's your turn to get hold of this thing and run and pass it to your children when God gives you them. Don't drop it. We're going to lose our a cappella music if you drop it. We're going to lose the worship, the gift that God gave the Christian church if you drop it. It'll be lost for you at least. And I challenge you young people that at the end is someone waiting to receive you. And to say, come on in, you want the race. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you, we bless you. Lord, we bless you. You've been so good to us. And you've given us so many opportunities. And now you're giving us an opportunity right now to make another decision. And Lord, even though my eyes are closed and everyone else's eyes are closed... Oh, if someone just wants to raise their hand to you and say, Lord, I'm, I'm making a decision. It's about my music. I'm doing it. It's between me and you, God. But I'm making it. And I'm willing to share it with someone else sometime, too. Oh, God, please, don't let these folks drop the baton. Don't let any of us older ones drop it. Help us to keep running the race. Oh, God, we give you praise. You're a good father to us. You're the one who's going to keep us from falling, and then you'll present us faultless. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful gift. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.